Welcome to this special edition of The Pen and the Yod. As we face the challenge of the coronavirus, where does God fit into the equation? Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anche Amit Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig and asks, are we experiencing the modern versus the biblical plagues? How should we look at the current situation through Jewish eyes? It all begins with the question, What's God got to do with it? I think that you also might note that because of the shelter-in-place order that we are all experiencing, as well as Rabbi Siegel and Jonathan, that this podcast was done on the internet. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Rabbi. How are you? Good. How is your family faring? We're doing okay. You know, it's strange times, and every day feels a little bit different. Um, you just wake up in the mornings. You know, the first thing is I, I check myself. I say, "Wow, I feel okay. Thank God. Let's let's get the day started." And then uh, it goes crazy from there. Right. Uh, you check your temperature. You uh, check your throat. It's um, and uh, it's, it's here, and we are really in the midst of uh, a very unusual time in our history. Yeah, have you noticed that the TV news makes your throat hurt? Right, it's like going to Psych 101 exactly. and, and realizing that you have every possible DSM-3 uh, malady. I do think about this in terms of Passover as well. We had a Zoom video last night where we were talking about preparing for Passover. The other rabbis and I were part of a three-part session, and a person really asked, uh, what do I tell my grandchildren? Why is God doing this? And why has God brought this plague about? And, you know, it does sound like a reasonable question, doesn't it? It does. It feels biblical. It feels like, the, you know, certainly the worst thing any of us have lived through in our, in our lifetimes, unless you're, you know, over 100. Or I, mean, I guess if you've lived through World War II, certainly if you were in Europe, you may have felt like you were going through something equally tragic and catastrophic. But this does feel like, uh, you know, if if... if I may be so bold that, you know, God is angry that somebody's being punished for something. Is that a fair line of thought right now? I think it's a dangerous line of thought. I think uh, if you look at the history of religion, the greatest catastrophes have happened throughout history, not just Jewish history, but throughout human history, when people thought they knew the mind of God, when people decided this is why this is happening and this is what we have to do to appease God in this moment. You know, there was a time when there was child sacrifice. That was one way to appease God. And I would shudder to think about the conclusions that people would draw for such a happening. I should also mention that it's also against Jewish law, interestingly enough, to try to decipher the mind of God. Not long after the temple was destroyed, in the year seven, the second temple in the year 70, the rabbis concluded that the age of prophecy had ended because you can't claim to have a prophecy when there is no more prophecy. And so I would suggest that we back off of that line of thinking. But the real question is, how do we think about this? How, what, is, what does God have to do with any of this? Does God have to do with the virus? Does God have to do with illness in general? We do pray to God. And does God? Yeah, we pray to God and we thank God. So, um, is it unfair that we can't also question whether um, God is trying to tell us something with these plagues? He was certainly trying to tell Pharaoh something with the plagues. There's no question that that's correct, and the Torah goes into great pains about that. It explains to you from the very onset that the Egyptian people themselves were part and parcel of the crimes that were being committed. The only two women that we have, uh, the only two Egyptian women, who responded against Pharaoh's decree to destroy the firstborn were uh, Shifra and Pua. 
which is the Torah's way of telling you that people were silent. They acquiesced to Pharaoh, whether they participated all of the Holocaust in the destruction of these children, we don't know. But the Torah is holding them responsible so that the fact that the plagues are visited upon the entire household of Egypt is a issue of equity from the Torah's perspective. And the Torah is very specific that this comes from the hand of God. But that statement isn't part of today's world. The question really is, how does Judaism approach such matters? How does Judaism understand God's role in the universe? And how do we understand God as a healer? Right. Well, that's very separate questions. I mean, I struggle with this because I want to understand how we're supposed to behave. What can we do to be better uh, people and better Jews at a time like this? And I, I don't mean that we need to have an answer about why this is happening to us. But if we don't know why it's happening, does that make it more difficult for us to take the lesson away from it? Maybe the maybe the reason has nothing to do with God. Maybe the reason is, is that, and this is something from the very beginning of the Torah, that the world is good. In fact, it's very good, but it's not perfect. The world has flaws and there are issues. There are earthquakes. There are uh, tornadoes, there are hurricanes, there are natural disasters, and every so often the world is overcome by some sort of virus. There was the Black Plague. We have, we have suffered. Does that mean that those are all part of God's plan? No, I don't think so. I do think it's all part of God's creation. It may seem like a fine line, but I think that there's a huge difference between saying that everything comes from God because God gave us the creation. That doesn't mean that everything is designed by God for us to have to deal with. Not everything should be understood as a punishment. You must get this a lot in your in your work and in, in comforting families that are suffering and grieving and having suffered losses, uh, people looking for an explanation, trying to understand why this happened to them when they feel like they've been good people. And I'm sure for many people I know who've had their faith shaken by this, they've lost their interest in religion. They've lost interest in praying because they feel like God somehow punished them. How do you shake people of that notion at a time of such stress like this? when people need comfort. I remember something that happened when I was a, a very young rabbi. I went to visit someone in the hospital who was very ill and fresh out of rabbinical school. And I walked into the hospital room and the man looked at me and says, Rabbi, tell me, why is God doing this to me? And being a young rabbi, I had the temerity to try to answer him. And I began to give him kind of a theological lesson about God and the universe and how the rabbis understood this. And if you really want to see how angry you can make somebody who's ill. This is a really good formula. I mean, his hair didn't actually catch on fire, but it came about as close as one could imagine. And what I learned from that was that when someone says that to you, they're telling you something different. They're saying, this hurts and I'm afraid. And I think that what I've learned is that when someone says, why is God doing this to me? And, I, and I, my response is, this is a scary time, isn't it? This is hard. And that opens the door to a very different conversation. You know, we're so clinically oriented that we don't 
spend enough time dealing with the experiential aspects of illness, and I think that's partially where God comes in. So I want to I wanna divide this answer in two parts. Let's talk about the healing piece, the spiritual piece, but let's also not lose the opportunity to talk about God's role in the universe. How do you respond when I say that? That instead of trying to explain to a person why God does anything, because we don't actually know the answer to that question. But if you're going to open the door to saying that God brings this illness to this person or to that person, then you're also going to have to logically then conclude that every child in Lurie Children's is also being punished for something. And by the time you allow the this to reach its logical conclusion, I can say to you as a rabbi, and actually as your rabbi, that if this is how God functions in the universe, I personally don't want to have anything to do with that God. And I'm interested in how you respond to me saying that. Well, that's I think that's like you're hitting on it very squarely, that um, the, the initial reaction, the, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, if God's going to do this to me, I don't want anything to do with God. That's just not the, not the kind of God I want to deal with. And the much more difficult struggle is to believe when you don't want to believe or to admit that you just don't, you're not going to have the answers. And that's been a, a really big part of it for me as I've gotten older and tried to make sense of my, my growing skepticism, which was always pretty, pretty strong, uh, especially as a young journalist. Skepticism is, you know, as a really strong muscle in my anatomy. Um, how do I, you know, balance that skepticism? Uh, with faith. And I have to just admit, tell myself over and over that not knowing and not having answers is, is kind of the key to it. You have to accept that, that you're just never going to have answers to those seemingly black and white I think questions. That's true. I, I think that's what faith is about. You know, faith is different than knowledge or scientific knowledge. You know, there are things that are beyond us. And I think that one of the aspects of the coronavirus is that there is, there are microscopic bacteria in the air, viral bacteria that can bring humanity to its knees. That is a very humbling thing to look at. And so there are things that are far beyond our knowledge, things that we will never be able to understand. But part of what religion is about, certainly what Judaism is about, is relationship with God, not being alone. I think that that's something that I've experienced when I have been ill and I've had to face some difficult illnesses of just inviting God's presence in. I don't want to be alone in this moment. Um, if we spend all of our time asking, why is this happening to me? We're never going to get very far and it will only be anger provoking and as you said, frustrating as an adult. But if I ask, what can this relationship be? It's a very different conversation because if you've ever been ill, and I certainly have in my life, you can be surrounded by people and feel very alone. That's the existential loneliness of illness. So only God can fill that role and say, I don't want to be alone in this. I don't, I want to feel the presence of something beyond me. And so I think that's part of what prayer is. It's interesting. Yeah, I want to explore that with you a little bit because you talked about the invisibility of this virus and I don't know about you, but right now I see it everywhere. I, I imagine it on every doorknob that I touch. I imagine it in the air as I'm walking past somebody six feet away on the sidewalk. Is that really six feet away? I am, I, I can almost see it. I think about it all the time. 
so how can I do that with God to fight it off, to fight off that, that fear? How can I have God as visible or as much in my imagination as the, as these damn germs are? Well, I think that that's a learned skill. Let's just start with that. That's kind of what prayer is about. Prayer is about being conscious, being conscious of another reality than the one that is facing us. You know, we're seeing the best of humanity, but we're also seeing the worst of humanity right now. Um, you see it in hoarding, but then you see people do extraordinary things. You see it in racism, where people are blaming people from China for this illness. But you're also seeing it in extraordinary acts of kindness of a mailman, you know, uh, or the newspaper man buying food for his elderly uh customers, things of that nature. So we're seeing both. One of the things that I want to hasten to underscore is that part of the very premise that Judaism is based on is that every person is created in the image of God and that we are in partnership with God. And therefore, we have a unique responsibility to see people as human beings and not simply looking at them as threats to us, as threats to us. And I think that that's an important distinction. When I'm walking down the street, yes, it is very scary. You have a mask on, you have gloves on, you're thinking about this all the time, you're scrubbing your hands. So it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole of looking at certain people as threats to you. And part of part of what religion is there to do is to give you a pair, different pair of lenses to look at the world through and remind you that you have responsibilities to the human race and we have a responsibility together to heal this planet. And that kind of takes me back to the creation story, because in the creation story, human beings are created as God's partner, right? We're not victims here. We are empowered to be God's partner to to correct the challenges of the creation, what we call tikkun olam, to repair the world, both spiritually and physically. Right. And that means we have the uh, responsibility now try to reach out to people, even though we're being isolated, you know, we're and the, the isolation tends to reinforce the idea that it's every man for himself, every person for for his for herself, and that we have to hunker down and just make sure our families are OK and that um, we keep the germs away from our doors. But um, I feel like the opposite is true, that we, you know, we have to try to somehow build a stronger community in this time if we're going to get through I, this I couldn't thing agree together. more. And I think that the Jewish message here is that you have a responsibility. It's a chiyuv, it's a mitzvah, it's an obligation, a commandment to be involved, right? It's not a choice. It's not something, well, you know, you don't have to put your life at risk. That's a very different issue. But it is, it is to say that you have a real responsibility to um, make a difference to other people and to be there for them. And, and by the way, part of that responsibility is protecting other people. I have responsibility to be looking out for you on the street if we happen to be walking by each other to keep to keep social distancing. I have responsibility to wash my hands or, as they're beginning to say, to wear a mask on the street, not to protect me, but to protect you from me. That's my obligation. That is, that's not just a, a helpful hint. You know, in Jewish life, that is your responsibility. We don't in Jewish life say, well, God, you'll, you'll protect me. That is about as un-Jewish as it gets. You have a responsibility. You have an obligation 
to care for other people. I and mean, that's been the work of the synagogue and how we are trying to take care of people through meals, through connecting to people, to calling people, to making sure that people are okay, not only physically, but also emotionally. And that's a religious obligation. And in a very real way, that's how you bring God into the equation. Or does that make sense? Yeah, and I feel like that's been, it does make sense. And I feel like, especially for the kids, that's been one of the really important lessons here. You know, they want to know why they can't go out and see just one of their friends. And when it begins to sink into them that it's not about whether they're going to catch this as much as whether they're going to spread it and the responsibility that you have there to to think about others before you think about yourself is a really powerful lesson. And I think it's, it's a deeply religious I one. I think that's a, it's, it's the most important lesson that we can be learning. But I, I want to I, I would be remiss if I didn't kind of come back to this idea of medicine and God and the Bible, and Judaism. Because one of the things that we shouldn't allow ourselves to forget is just how ineffective medicine was for most of human history, up until the invention of penicillin. The Talmud, by the way, roundly uh, criticizes doctors. And when your best hope was bloodletting, you know, that's that's highly problematic. So what could people do in a world where they really didn't have any understanding of bacteria or what causes illness? And there were people that said, well, this all must, must be punishment from God. And there's a very famous story of rabbis, by the way, who appear in the Haggadah, Rabbi Ishmael, Rabbi Akiva. They're walking down the street. And when they're walking down the street, a sick person calls out to them and he says, my masters tell me with what shall I be healed? And he's, you know, I'm sick. Tell me what I should, what medicine should I take? And evidently they were confident in what they were offering. And a third person uh, uh, observes the scene. And they said to the rabbis, wait a minute, who afflicted this man with this illness? And they said, God. Because everything in a sense comes from God. So even illness comes from God because it's all part of the creation. And so the man then goes on and says, wait a minute, if you're offering medicine, then you're really interfering in an area which is not yours. He afflicted and you heal. And they said to him, what is your occupation? And the man responded, he says, I'm a farmer. Can't you see? Look, I'm walking down the street with a sickle in my hand. So wouldn't that give it, wouldn't that tell you who I am? And they said to him, well, let me ask you, what, who created the field? Who created the vineyard? And they said, the Holy One, and he said, the Holy One, blessed be he. And they said to him, and you, and you, you have interfered in an area not yours. He created these, and you eat their fruit? In other words, if that's true, that you shouldn't interfere with a person's illness, then you probably shouldn't plow your fields either. You should leave the world alone and kind of find the berries that you can pick and all the rest, but not to interfere. And so this then becomes the Jewish approach to medicine, that we are duty-bound, we are responsible to work within the creation, just as a farmer works the land, to heal people in need of healing. We don't speculate about God punishing this person and that person. What we do say is that God is responsible for the creation. So by virtue of that, God is responsible for everything that happens in the creation. 
But what we believe is that ultimately God wants us to heal. God wants us to take care of other people and, and by the same token, to find a cure that is part of it, but also to be human beings is the other part of it. How do I respond to other people in need, especially in a time when I'm very afraid? Can I see the humanity in every person? Do I see the image of God in every person? And I think we have to work at that. That's something we have to practice. But I think in a nutshell, that's kind of the Jewish approach. Right. And it gets back to, um, you know, believing in the unseen. It, it makes perfect sense that when you didn't have uh, much in the way of medicine, that you would turn to the, to the, to the rabbis and to the priests, um, to, to be your healers because they were the most powerful people that you knew and they, they seem to have the best connection to the unseen and to the inexplicable. I wonder how that changes now. How is our relationship to God and, and healing different now that we have doctors and we have drugs that often will make things more clear and, um, well, I and think, you know, scientific. you said that you spoke about that there's a world that's seen and unseen and it's not just the, the unseen world isn't just about bacteria. There's an unseen world of the holy. How It's not just about do we want to continue living physically. Of course we do. But what does that mean? What does Chaim really mean in its fullest sense? What's the, how do I live both as an organism in this world, but how do I live as a human being? And what does that ultimately mean? That's the, I mean, that's the larger question. What's going to keep us human? I look at the news. I watch the news just like everybody else, probably a little bit too much. And there's so much sensationalism in the news about doctors prescribing this cure or that cure, and suddenly you can't get this medicine or that medicine because the doctors are hoarding it, or people going to Costco. I think that we need to be educated by example. And the more stories we hear about people doing extraordinary things, people on the front lines, people who are first responders, people who go to work, and the fact that at 7 p.m. people are applauding those people on the front lines tells us what really matters in this world. And I think we all have a responsibility to focus on the positive. I think our public officials have to focus on the positive to raise us up. In other words, that's how we bring God into the conversation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and is, doesn't that mean that there's another kind of healing that can go on here, that we can heal some of the other diseases, the diseases of loneliness, um, the diseases of insensitivity, that we're trying now in these desperate times to to reach out to friends and relatives we haven't talked to in a long time. We're trying to reconnect with our religion. We're trying as best we can to maintain communities that are being uh, split apart by this social isolation. Um, maybe that's the kind of healing that um, that God is looking I, I, for I could, from I, us I, right I now, too. And the reality is, is that this is a learned response. It's something that we have to practice on a daily basis because it, from everything that the um, experts are saying, this isn't going to get better before, this is going to get worse before it gets better. And people do all kinds of things when they are afraid. And I think that, you know, in Hebrew, the word yira can mean awe and it can mean fear. When people are fearful, they can be very ugly. When people are in awe and see the larger world and see our interconnectedness and our responsibilities to be there for one another, then I think that we have a chance to really respond in a way that creates holy moments, even in these challenging times, just that there were holy moments, even in the concentration camps. There's a very famous story, and I think we should probably end with this, a very famous story of um, 
of a, of a rabbi who was asked, where's God? Where's God? And I think that that's a reasonable question for us to ask on a day like this. And the response of the rabbi, I think, is really instructive. He said, God is everywhere that human beings allow God to be. And so when we extend ourselves for another person, when we are respectful of distances, when we're protecting other people, when we are calling those people who are in need of a call who might be very much alone in the world, when we're making sure that people get meals, when we're tipping those people who are really at risk economically double what we would normally do or just saying thank you, that brings God into the equation. We're sort of inviting God in. It's everywhere we allow God to be. That's the Jewish perspective, at least, or this perspective of the Jewish religion. I hope it, I hope it resonates with you, and I hope it resonates with others. I know it does with me, and I thank you for helping to keep our community you, strong uh, just, in this uh, time. Just to pick up on that, what's been so extraordinary, and I think that our community is um, speaks to many, many synagogues around the country, but we have a volunteer system of people calling our most vulnerable, and there and people are just looking to help. People are looking to make a difference. And while we are sequestered, it is really heartening to see how we are connected. Uh, I can't help myself but make a Passover analogy with you. And that is that um, the first sheltered home order was given by God. If you think about the night of the 10th plague, the Israelites were told to stay in their homes. They weren't allowed to go outside. They put the blood on the doorpost, but they hunkered down inside. But there was a meal, there was a Paschal lamb that they had to prepare. And if the Paschal lamb was too large for one family, they would have to invite other families to partake. And so there's a double message here, that while we may be hunkered down in our homes during this time of pandemic, there are ways that we can connect with each other and care for each other that go beyond us so that we will all be worthy of a collective redemption. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Thanks, Jonathan. I really appreciate your time.